0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 11, and uh, I do just want to publicly thank my good friend, brother in Christ, and in ministry, Travis, for leading us in worship this morning. I'm super grateful, (laughs) grateful for our whole team, and uh, man, just blessed by our time in worship today. Um, As you're turning to John chapter 11, I want to ask you this question, do you remember the first funeral that you ever attended? Kind of a somber way to start our time together. Um, But I just want you to take a moment and kind of reflect back and think about that first funeral. For me, I was about eight or nine years old, and it was my grandmother's funeral. She had battled lung cancer for a long time, and I could remember being in the cafeteria of the hospital. We had gone to visit her and then uh, saw her in her room, and uh, she wasn't responsive at all, but we, um, you know, spent some time with her at her bedside, and then we were, In the cafeteria, eating something, and my mom came down uh, with tears in her eyes and informed us children that uh, our grandmother had passed. And even though I had kind of seen her uh, struggle and her body kind of give itself over to death for a few months, it was still really hard for my young brain to comprehend the idea that my grandmother was no longer alive. She wasn't here. And then uh, a few days later, I remember getting dressed up and sitting near the front of an old church and hearing a, an older man talk about her, and we cried, and we laughed, and we prayed, and then we went to my aunt's house and ate cold cuts. And that was my experience with death for the f- first time. And, and maybe your, your experience could be a little similar, or maybe it's vastly dim- different. Maybe very traumatic, uh, the first encounter with death. But the universal truth that exists in the room today is that we are all going to experience death. Whether a family member, or a friend, or a pet, um, Ultimately, we will be our own. And it's something we understand, but it's not something we like to talk about. It's kind of awkward and hard because death means that something is ending. And usually that end comes with some grief because we liked that thing. We loved that person. We enjoyed that relationship. We, we respected them. We held on to that pet. And so the death of that is, is kind of hard because really we feel like we're out of control. We're reminded um, that life is short and we don't really have any kind of say in the matter. I remember growing up in church, I heard a lot of preachers say, you never know when it's gonna be your day. You could walk out these doors and get hit by a bus. I'm just telling you, every time I walked to the parking lot, I was like looking for that murder bus <laughs> that just had a list of names just ready to can just take people out. But really, the idea that we don't have control over something is hard because it disrupts our plans. We, we make plans. We have ideas of how things should go in our life, and, and death is the ultimate disruption. It throws everything off. It's kind of annoying, really. So when we say that Jesus has control over life and death, that's like the ultimate superpower, right? That definitely makes him worthy to follow closely. And we're going to dig into a passage today in Scripture that is pretty familiar, but it shows Jesus' control over life and death. It's the story of Lazarus. And if you've never heard of him, he's a guy who died, and then, spoiler alert, he came back to life. Sorry if that maybe felt like I gave away the punchline, but uh, it's a pretty familiar story, and it's right in front of you. You could read ahead at any moment, so I wasn't really counting on that being like my big reveal for you today. Rather, we're going to look at the first half of the story the first 27 verses that show Jesus' control over life and death before he even raises anybody from the dead. Because here's the thing I want us to understand. The main idea, bottom line, some things have to die in order for other things to come to life. It's just kind of the way it goes. In, In nature, the seed must die in the ground to spring forth a new plant. With the food chain, one animal must die so that the other one can live. In a marriage, the maiden must die, quote unquote, so the wife can be born. So Jesus has control over life and death, and we're going to see that there's some things in our life that must die in order for other things to come to life. So read with me in John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So right there, we're reintroduced to a family that is prevalent in Jesus' life. This was a family that when he and his disciples came through town, they would stay with Mary and Martha and their Brother Lazarus. And it references one scenario with Mary, but this is the Mary and Martha who, in Luke chapter 10, uh, they have this dinner party, and Martha is so concerned with the preparations, but Mary, meanwhile, sits at Jesus' feet, and Martha kind of calls out Jesus for not making Mary help her. And so you can imagine with that story that Lazarus would have been in the house, probably being just as unhelpful as Mary. But he was there. He was the brother. And it references Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil. And if you've been coming, we've been working our, whole, uh, our way through the whole book of John so far. And you might be like, I don't remember that. That's because it doesn't happen in uh, the book of John until chapter 12, the very next chapter. So just remember that John is not writing this at, like it's a, a daily entry in his journals. This is everything has happened. John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going back through and recounting everything that has happened. So he's giving a kind of factor of who Mary was. This was the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with oil, who was so devoted to Christ. That's her brother who is ill. And not like a runny nose, scratchy throat, flu season, maybe how you walked in this morning type of sick. This had taken a turn for the worse. They'd kind of run out of options, so they they send word to Jesus the same way that if uh, you had a family or a friend who was uh, sick, you would want people to kind of clue you in on that, right? You would be kind of upset if you didn't know that someone was deathly ill in relation to you. And they kind of just assumed that the miracle was going to happen because they knew who Jesus was, they believed in him, and he loved them, so they figured this would probably take place pretty quick. They'd send word. Jesus would rush back from where he was, probably walk across a couple lakes to cut the trip in half and then uh, walk in and spit in mud or draw a line in the sand whatever he wanted to do in that moment and then bippity boppity boop Lazarus back to full health. That was just kind of what they're assuming. But watch what happens next. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So you've got to kind of picture the scene here. This messenger has been instructed by the sisters Mary and Martha, like, go find Jesus. He's staying outside of the city. You've got to go find him and tell him that Lazarus, his, his buddy, his, his brother, he, the one he loves is sick. He's got to come. And so this messenger rushes, runs. This long trip, finally tracks down Jesus and his disciples, runs up to him, and he's like, hey, 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 uh, your, your buddy Lazarus, he's really sick. You got to come. And Jesus is like, hey, chill. I know he's sick, but the illness he has, it doesn't lead to death. In fact, he's sick so that God would be glorified. That's a pretty good diagnosis. Like, like the ultimate physician, you're in the room, you're like, get all, all the tests have been done. And he's like, dude, don't worry about it. You're sick. You'll get over it. It's, it's not going to lead to death. Really, it's a good thing you're sick, because God's going to be glorified. So you kind of imagine the messenger is like, oh, um, OK. I'll, uh, I'll go back. I'll tell them that, OK? So uh, thank you. God bless. Uh, you bless. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> and he for sure takes his time going back, right? He's not like rushing. He's maybe taking the scenic route, stopping for a bite to eat. But the truth is, as we're going to find out, is that Lazarus had died probably right after the messenger left. So he was dead before the messenger even got to Jesus, and Jesus knew this. It wasn't like Jesus just figured he had it, figured, you know, he had it under control. He's, he's just a little sick. He'll be all right. And he finds out Lazarus died, and he's like, oh, really misdiagnosed that one. Uh, my bad. No. So we know that Jesus knew. We know that Jesus understood what was about to happen. But if Jesus, the Son of God, who knows everything, is aware of the gravity of the situation, the next two verses make no sense together. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's not how that works, Jesus. I don't think you understand like, a loving relationship how it's supposed to go. We want that to read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he left at once for the town of Bethany. That seems like the Jesus I want to follow. Not when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days and let Lazarus rot in his grave. Doesn't compute in my mind. But that's how things kind of work with Jesus. He exceeds your expectations by constantly destroying your expectations because the truth is this our first point this morning is my expectations have to die in order for God's plan to come to life again Jesus isn't thrown by the fact that Lazarus has died in fact he said the whole reason Lazarus got sick and ultimately died in the first place was for God's glory so he's on a different playing field altogether in this situation he sees the whole picture the disciples, Mary, Martha, the messenger, they see a couple brush strokes. I remember being at an event once where they had one of these speed painters. Have you ever seen these guys? Where they have like a couple minutes and they're just like throwing paint on this canvas and you're like, you're sitting there and you're like, this is terrible. Like I, my five-year-old could do this. They hired this guy. I'm in the wrong business. And, and then like the last second, the guy picks up the canvas and flips it and it's a masterpiece. It's a portrait. It's this beautiful scene. What's astounding to me is that that painter knew exactly what the finished product was going to look like. He knew where every brush stroke was going to go. He knew when it should go there, and he knew that at the last minute, if he changed the perspective of the audience, they would see that it was a plan all along, and it was gorgeous. Your expectations have to die, though, in order for the plan to be revealed. And Jesus keeps doing this as we continue the story, Next verse. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Two times now, Jesus has almost been murdered by stoning. Once, when he said, I came before Abraham. And they picked up rocks and they were ready to stone him. And then just recently in the past chapter, chapter 10, when he said, I and the Father are one. And so this would have been so fresh in the disciples' mind, they would still see vividly in their mind's eye the rage of people as they looked for something heavy and blunt enough to start chucking at them. And all it really says about how they escaped that situation was that Jesus, he escaped from their hands. So we have to imagine that there was some sort of supernatural thing that happened to get them out of that situation. I don't think Jesus talked his way out of being stoned. I think it was they went after him, and the next thing the disciples knew, they were walking out of town, and the crowd was nowhere around them. So this is so fresh in their mind. They they feel like they just escaped death a few times, and so they're trying to advise their friend, like, this is probably a really bad plan. And... Jesus responds with an analogy that would, they would understand. It seems a little out of place to us, but let's unpack it. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. The days were split at that time into two twelve-hour segments. And around this time of the year, there would have been exactly right about twelve hours of daylight, and 12 hours of darkness. And so when the sun rose, you got up and you did your work. And when the sun went down, you went home. And you called it quits for the day. The idea he's trying to communicate is, I have a set amount of hours of work to do. My hour is coming. My death is coming. But until then, the sun's out. I got work to do. So I don't need to be afraid of any situation or anything. The light is out. I can see God is leading us. Let's not fear anybody else. My work has to be done. They don't really get it, so he tells them why they would even go back. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. I love it. These guys are trying so hard to help Jesus out. Like, they would have been there. The messenger, hey, Lazarus is super sick. He, he, it doesn't look good. And Jesus like, nope, it's all good. He's, he's, he's not going to die. This is for God's glory. And then Jesus, a couple days later, is like, hey, uh, Lazarus is asleep. Let's go wake him up. And they're like, um, we don't have any like antibiotics or anything. Like, his immune system is all he's got. So he should probably sleep as long as he needs to sleep. I don't think that's really the best medical advice, to go just wake him up from the nap that he's in you got to imagine Jesus like in his full human nature is just kind of like <sighs> next verse <laughs> then Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died okay and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples let us also go that we may die with him i'm just going to pause right here i'm going to advocate that we drop the whole Doubting Thomas line and remember him for this epic moment right here. As a guy who shares his name, my last name is Thomas, right? It's just kind of all this negative connotation. Thomas was a doubter. This is an epic moment for Thomas. He just pulled out like a ride or die mantra. He's ready to go to town with his boys, man. Let's do it. Let's go with him. I'm getting that tattoo. Let us go with him also so that we may die with him. Man, come on, Thomas. So they head back. Verse 17 If you had, how many of our angry prayers to God start with that sentence? If only you had given me a sign, if you had just given me that job, if you had just given me that relationship, if you had been there, you wouldn't have died. But my expectations have to die in order for God's plan to come to life. And then watch this. Martha's learned a thing or two about Jesus. She's not about to get Jesus juked again. The last time she called Jesus on something, it turned out bad for her, and everybody calls her Martha, Martha, anxious and troubled about many things, Martha, Martha. So Mary stayed in the house, but she gets up, and she goes to Jesus, and she gives him a piece of her mind again, but then she follows it up with some very spiritual platitudes, thinking that will soften the blow and keep her out of trouble with Jesus. But even now, verse 22... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is like her obligatory Facebook post around her brother's death. She's kind of ticked off. Jesus didn't meet her expectations, but she wants to show she has faith. So she says, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And you might be like, this sounds pretty sincere. I mean, she's, she's hoping for the miracle still. But I'd say she's assuming the miracle's coming in a different way. Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I mean, that sounds pretty good coming from the miracle worker. Your brother will rise again. But look at Mary's response, Martha's response. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha knew her Bible. She knew Daniel 12 and the prophecy that all those who sleep in the dust of the earth, they will awake. So she's putting her hope in something that is to come. She's assuming she knew what Jesus was talking about. Jesus in the flesh, standing before her, and she's putting her faith in a prophecy that still to this day is waiting to be fulfilled. She looked ahead and said, Someday my brother will rise. She's assuming what Jesus was trying to say. If you've ever lost someone close to you, then you you might understand how trite some phrases from people just feel, and they're, they're trying their best, they're trying to empathize and sympathize with you. You'll see them again someday. They're waiting for you in heaven. They're probably looking down right now, smiling at you. I, I hope not. <laughs> I hope they're not looking down at me. I hope they're looking at Jesus. Jesus. I just think Martha was assuming that's what Jesus was trying to do. He was just trying to comfort her by speaking about a future that she would see her brother. And that is comforting, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that that doesn't take true faith. True faith would be Jesus saying, your brother will rise again. And without missing a beat, Martha goes, how about right now? I mean, you're here, Jesus. Jesus. I just said that whatever you ask of the Father, he will give to you. So you said he'll rise again. Could it be today? Why not ask? It's not in a condescending way, like how about now? It's just, no, like you, Jesus, you could do it right here, right now, if you wanted to. You know, you want to know why I'm scared to pray for miracles? Because I'm assuming they're not going to happen. I'm just assuming. Yeah, we're going to go there for a minute. Come on. I remember sitting in a hospital room with my six-day-old six daughter, scared to pray for a fever to leave her body because I just assumed that it wouldn't happen. I was embarrassed by the weakness of my prayer in that moment. God, if it's, if it's your will, if you feel like it, if you have the time would you heal my daughter? This is my daughter. And I'm talking to the God of the universe who raised the dead multiple times. You think he's worried about a fever? You think he's sweating over a little fever in my daughter. Church, I'm worried that we've lessened the idea of faith to be something that we have around things that we already know to be true. That we've lessened it to something that I already know this is going to happen, so it's easy to put my faith in it because I'm just assuming it will. I have faith that God is good. Well, duh, God is good. Your faith didn't make him any gooder. He's the goodest he'll always be. No grammar emails this week. That was just to drive the point home. Faith is not praying, God, if it's in your will, would you heal the sickness? If it's in his will, he's going to do it regardless of whether you pray or not. But that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. Faith, rather, I would say, is pray, God, in, in your name, every disease, germ, mass, infirmity be gone in the name of Jesus. That's faith. Not someday in heaven, here as in heaven, now. John fourteen fourteen. Jesus declares, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But we just assume, we assume what that verse means. We assume that that means I have to pray exactly what Jesus would pray in the right order and it unlocks like a bonus level of life. And if I don't do it right, it's not going to happen. That's not true faith. That's an assumption that God doesn't really care about you or what you ask or what you care about. Now, James 4, 2 through 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's true. I want to clear this up. Affixing in Jesus' name onto give me the new iPhone doesn't count. That's not faith. God is not a genie, but he's also not a puppet master. God is a father. And just like an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children, in Matthew 7, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you? To those who ask him, it says. One of the things I'm amazed at with my oldest son, Mason, he's, he's almost five years old, is the kid is not afraid to ask for the moon. Right? faith of a child, call it that. We were at Costco the other day, um, and they put out all the like epic Christmas toys so that your kids can whine at you for a couple months before Christmas, and um, really smart. But uh, we were on a daddy date, we had to run to Costco, and I was feeling generous. I'm like the sucker for my kids. My wife is, is, is not happy with that all the time. But, um, so I'm feeling generous, it's just him and I, I'm like, dude, let's get a toy, that's really the only reason I wanted to have kids was that so we could buy sweet toys and I could play with them. Don't tell her that. Um, I'm like, dude, let's get a toy today. Let's go look at what they got for toys. Let's pick something out. And so he's, he's excited. And we're, he's smart, though. He's like, it's not like first thing we see that he thinks is awesome. He's like, I want that. He's like, makes me walk up and down all the aisles so that he can assess the situation and uh, figure it out. So we're walking through. After a couple minutes, I'm like, okay, bud, do like, you see anything? Like, let's have a conversation here. And he's like, I'm like, what about this little Lego set? Or there's this little truck. And he's like, no, no, go back down that aisle. And so I start walking. I'm like, what, is, what are you looking at? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, he's like, stop. And he just gets this big smile on his face. And he points up. I got a picture of it. He points up at this thing. Dude, I'm not even mad. I was so impressed. I was like, hate the game, not the player, dude. I mean, he like, he, no parameters. I gave no, like, confi- he's like, this looks pretty awesome, dad. Let's get this. So I bought it. No, I didn't buy it. Uh, I, told him, I told him, hey, if you, if you die on a, a snow bike before the age of five, your mother will kill me as well. So let's hold off on that. Um, and then we got like this sweet dump truck with a lift. It was still pretty sweet. But, uh, but he wasn't afraid to ask. Like it didn't even cross his mind that this isn't a possibility. Best case scenario. Dad says yes. Worst- case scenario: Dad says no." Now the problem with kids is, the no is hard. I whine and ask, and why not?" And that sounds kind of like my relationship with the Lord. "Please, God?" The answers no. Why? How dare you Throw a tantrum? And the problem can be that if I give my kid everything he wants, every time he asks for it, he becomes entitled. He starts assuming that whatever he wants and desires and whatever thing he can think of, that that should happen in dad's name. The difference that we can find in our lives is that when We have faith in God when we ask and the answer is no. We don't lose faith. We trust that his plan is happening. Don't let the fear of a no stop you from asking for a yes. Skip Heitrich says it like this. God's delays are not his denials. I'm going to take it a step further and say God's delays are not always his denials, and his denials are not our deprivation. God is not withholding miracles and blessings from you in a way that is spiteful or to lord over you. Rather, again, much like a loving father, he is often shielding us from the hurt that would come if we got the thing we're asking for. He is protecting us from the pain or seeing the big, bigger picture. He's saying it, it, it's not a, a, a no, it's just not that this. He sees the whole picture. He knows that that brush stroke shouldn't go there. It should go over here. Here's the point of what we're talking about. My assumptions have to die in order for faith to come to life. Let your assumptions die and you will see faith spring forth in your life. Jesus is going to call Martha to a point of decision in this crucial moment. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So in one sentence, Jesus declares one of the most amazing truths of the gospel that is still applicable to us today. This was the whole reason he was on earth, so that he would draw his people back to himself and give them true life. He was the Messiah. And the funny thing is, is that everyone around him was looking for the Savior, but nobody was ready for the way Jesus was going to save. They wanted a Messiah who was big and powerful and would build vast armies and establish a new earthly kingdom for everybody to get their best life now. And here comes this humble son of a carpenter who recruits 12 misfits and continually tells them about his father's kingdom that nobody can get through unless they go through him. And oh, by the way, to get even to him, you have to die to everything else. So Jesus says, do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord is always a good response in your life. In fact, no, Lord, is an oxymoron. Because if you believe that Jesus is the Lord of your life, yes is the only appropriate response. But we like to try it out. No, Lord. Here's why because we doubt. We have some doubts. I would argue that even in Martha's response, there was some doubt in her heart. We're going to see next week that she's not quite all there on what's about to happen. After everything she's seen, after everything Jesus has said, after this incredible interaction where Jesus makes one of the best statements in human history, she still doubts. And doubt murders hope in our life. When you try to put all of your hope in Jesus, the enemy's greatest play in your life is doubt. Some of you might be hearing it right now. This isn't true. This isn't, this, nobody lives like this in real life. Nobody actually believes this. Maybe you heard it on the way in. Who are you kidding? You don't belong there. They're going to see right through you. And many of us have maybe heard doubt for so long that we don't even know it's doubt. We think it's definition. This is who I am. That's the problem with doubt, is if you let it live long enough, it becomes definitive in your life. My doubt has to die in order for hope to come to life. That's our last point. My doubts have to die in order for hope to come to life. There's no question in the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. There's no doubt there. Anyone who has ever put their faith in Jesus Christ and has passed away is alive and well and having a really great day today. And everyone who lives, I think that's all of us here in the room right now. Anyone who lives and believes shall never die. No doubt about it. Believe in Jesus, never die. The greatest trade you'll ever make. My doubt has to die in order for hope to come alive. You can't kind of believe in Jesus. You can't dip your toe in the water of Christianity. You can't be a Sunday Christian. And you can't be a someday Christian. Well, after I kind of live my life a little bit, after I kind of do what I want to do and get after it, and maybe someday I'll follow Christ. Just not right now. No, Jesus, standing before you, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And when you believe, you're... Doubt dies and hope comes to life. And the thing about real, true, living hope is that it's always in the present. You see, at this point, Mary is still seated in the house. And that's kind of a cultural thing a little bit um, because when somebody passed away, a relative or someone in the family, they would... um, The family would stay in their house for 30 days. They wouldn't leave the house, and it'd be 30 days of mourning. It's interesting to me that that Mary is is seated in the house still because Mary was the rebel. Mary was the one who fought cultural norms and didn't prepare dinner. She went and sat at Jesus' feet. Mary is the one who is going to take a really expensive bottle of perfume and break it on Jesus' feet and then use her hair to wipe it. But I would argue that Mary is stuck in a past hope. She had hoped, she had believed, she had asked Jesus to do something in her life and then he didn't show up. So she remained seated in the house with no hope for the present, no hope for the future because her hope had been broken in that moment. And Martha, she gets out of that chair and when she hears Jesus is coming, she goes to Jesus, but she, she moves right past Jesus and she, she sits in the seat of future hope. Someday this will be better. But man, too much has happened to even think that my life could be put back together. We're just kind of assuming that, that she wasn't married. And so for her brother to die, would, like her social status would be kind of ruined. And so she's, she's kind of given up on what Jesus could do right here in the moment when she's standing before him. She said, no, like, it's, it's done. My life is too screwed up. I get, there's no reason to have any hope. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say, church, is that there's a third chair. And it's called present, true, living hope. And it's in Jesus' Because Jesus is saying, no matter what's happened in the past, no matter what you think didn't meet your expectations, that you assumed, all of that that's been broken, I'm telling you that he's here today saying, you can have hope in me right now. But he's also saying, don't just like give up on what's going on in your life right now and just hope that someday when we all get to heaven, like it's going to be great. Stop believing that God's blessings and promises for your life are just stockpiled away in some mansion in the sky. God wants to do something in your life today, here, and now. Come on. Listen, I'm believing that there are people, that there are people in this room who a miracle is coming in your life. That God wants to do something supernatural in you as you pray and your faith is activated and you put your trust and your hope in Jesus and doubts are put aside, that God will do something crazy in your life if you have the faith to see it. I believe that. But I also believe that as you sit in this chair, you will begin to see that the miracle exists every moment of every day because Jesus didn't just say that once I was the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I can give you hope right now. I can give you faith right now. I can show you my plan right now that everything that you would do, it would matter and have a purpose because I love you. I'm your father. And so today, there's there's, there's a point of decision, much like Martha had, of, do you believe this? So we're going to sing here to kind of close our, our time together, but I, I want us to remain seated. And you can close your eyes. You can do kind of just take a moment. What I, what I want you to do is I want you to decide which chair you're sitting in today. Are you sitting in a chair of, of past hope where, man, I... At one point, I can remember when my faith was so strong and I was so ready to see God do some things in my life, and then it was just tragedy after tragedy, bad thing after bad thing. This didn't happen. This didn't happen. This didn't happen. So I've kind of just, I'm just stuck in this past hope, wishing I could just go back. Man, if I could go back and do it all over again. Or maybe you find yourself in a future hope where, man, like I've I've done some messed up things I'm not who I should be and I I just don't think I'm going to get there so I'm just not even going to try someday you know I I punch my ticket I said said a prayer and someday I'll I'll, I'll get to heaven and it'll all kind of work itself out and then I'll have hope that's maybe maybe where I'll find hope so we're just going to take a moment and sing this and then we'll close our service together I just want you to decide which chair am I sitting in today?